Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. I'm excited to let you know we're finishing the parable series today. Um, we've got the regathering Sunday next week, as I mentioned earlier. But then um, on the 10th of September, we're going to be starting a series on Acts and the book of Acts, which is a very exciting book and it promises to be um, a good series. Um, but as I was, I was sort of doing a little bit of initial preparing this week, so I have this is on my bookshelf How to Read the Gospels and Acts by Joel B. Green, who's a brilliant New Testament. Uh, professor. However, as I was reading it, he had something to say about the parables, which I thought was very interesting. So let me read this little excerpt to you before we start. Of all the ways Jesus chose to communicate his message, none is more extraordinary to the modern reader than the parable. For in many ways, the parable is alien to our way of thinking, to people reared on reading, writing, and arithmetic, all primarily leading to a logical, prosaic, non-metaphorical view of reality. The parable must seem a mysterious form of communication. This fact is demonstrated at best by observing the number of preachers and teachers who feel compelled to explain a parable's message in straightforward propositional statements. So I'll be doing my best to avoid straightforward propositional statements this morning, but it did get me wondering, like, I wonder if Jesus even sort of expected us to, to, to take these apart in the way that we sometimes do. I think with parables, it's so much more about eliciting a response from us rather than trying to engage fully in the logic of it all. It's about creating a, a, a new world, giving us these metaphors to, um, to kind of wonder at and to get a little bit lost in in the best way possible. Um, have you enjoyed the parable series? Has it been interesting over the summer? We, we thought it was a good way to, to go through the summer, just focusing on the words of Jesus. We did them last summer as well, so I'm, I'm not sure. I think next summer we might need to mix it up a little bit. Um, and uh, just before we, we read today's parable, the last one for, for this summer, I want to just recap and read you another little quote. This is why I started the series with this quote. And again, I find this to be such a great way to, to enter into to what we're doing when we come to a parable. Um, so it's going to come up on the screen. For Jesus, the meaning of God's kingdom is a radical mystery. Even as he tells people about it, it remains permanently intractable to all attempts to fully grasp it. Jesus did not use the parables to explain everything to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question their previous understanding. In other words, the parables are trying to upset people's existing ideas as well as provide them with new ones. Are you ready for some new ideas? Great. So today we're going to look at Matthew 20. If you want to pull it up, um, it'll also be on the screen. And we're going to uh, get lost in the parable of uh, the workers in the vineyard. Uh, so this is Matthew 20 and verses 1 to 16. Let's take a moment, just 20 seconds or so before I, I read this, just to still ourselves and to prepare to enter the imaginary world of this parable. Lord, we pray you'd meet us as we examine this and that you would do something deep within us as we meditate on this parable that you give us, Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out 
and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of God. Now, I said, are you ready for some new ideas? Do you want to hear the first new idea that I want to suggest? Your Bible might be misleading you. <gasps> is that okay? Is that... The, the section titles and the subheadings that you will find throughout your Bible are, of course, not part of the original scripture. They've been added by very well-intending translators through the centuries. And, of course, they're often really helpful. They give you a quick summary of what the, the passage or the section is about, and they're often very accurate. And so in your Bible, and I looked at basically all of the, the common English translations, will almost certainly call this the parable of the workers in the vineyard or the laborers in the vineyard or just workers in the vineyard, something to that effect. The focus is on the workers, right? But I want to suggest to you that that's actually a bit misleading in this parable because I don't think the focus should be on the workers or the laborers. The focus should be on the landowner, and it's natural, right? We insert ourselves into everything. We see ourselves as the most important people in the world. And so the translators would, of course, have assumed the position of the workers. It's a little bit like, you could say, the prodigal son. Should it be called the parable of the prodigal son or of the compassionate father? Who knows, right? But it's a good thing to wonder about. But in this case, certainly, I think um, this should probably be called or be, be known as the, the parable of the compassionate landowner or maybe the parable of the generous employer. Now, why do I say that? Let's look at the text. Let's, let's work through it in detail. It begins in a very normal way. This story would have immediately been a familiar tale to first century listeners. So verses one and two, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which was a sort of normal day's wage, not a particularly extravagant one, just you know enough to get by for the day and sent them into his vineyard. This is a totally familiar story, right? In first century uh, agrarian kind of culture. 
But what is worth to note at this point is that um, these day laborers were at the very bottom of the economic ladder. They wouldn't even have had the, uh, the security afforded to a slave because of course a slave would be attached to a particular household or master. And so while they certainly weren't flourishing, they at least knew where they were gonna be the next day. Whereas a day laborer, such as, as the ones in this story, they were getting up in the morning, desperately hoping for work for the day in order to bring money home, food home for a hungry family that evening. And so their mere presence at this particular place, and of course every locale or village would have had a designated marketplace, their presence there turning up at you know, six in the morning, possibly with some tools, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., would have been a source of shame and probably a degree of humiliation because they were not otherwise gainfully employed and they were essentially living hand to mouth in a very real sense of that phrase. The landowner, on the other hand, would have very likely been quite wealthy, probably someone upstanding in the community. So you're bringing together these two very different people from different uh, parts of the economic spectrum. But so far, a normal story. It's in verse three that things start to get a little bit unusual. We read that about nine in the morning, so three hours later, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. Why would he go back? Is he not a good businessman? The thing about running a business is you kind of, you plan, you know how much extra labor you need, you know what the costs are gonna be. This is how you run a good business, right? I don't know anything about running a business, but I'm sure that's how, you know, it involves a degree of preparation, planning, knowing what your costs are gonna be in order to make sure all the numbers add up. So is this, is he, a, is he kind of not very good at what he does, this landowner? Why is he going back? Has he decided, oh, I might as well sort of do a bit more than I had planned to do today? No, I think the most plausible explanation is that he was compassionate. And so he went back after he'd hired the first ones at 6 a.m. and he probably had the rest of these people in his mind and he was thinking, you know, they might still be standing there. And of course, he probably had to walk a while. It probably wasn't, you know, next door. This was probably taking time out of his day to go back. I think it was because he was compassionate and he felt a need to go and try and help further. So already this would have been starting to be an unusual story. But then what happens in verse five is that he goes back. Uh, so they went, he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing, okay? So this is someone who like, this is not a normal way to operate your vineyard or your business. He, he's kind of like going back, you know, so I, I just can't believe that he was just so poorly planned that he needed to keep going back for that reason. I think he was compassionate. I think he felt, I wanna go back and see if I can hire anybody else for the day. And then we get to the most startling part of all in verses six and seven. So I, I said the, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. Um, and so this is now 5 p.m. In the King James translation, this is called the 11th hour. Now, do you know the phrase, the 11th, you know, like they book their holiday at the 11th hour. That comes from this story. The King James Bible has influenced our language in so many ways. So the, the whole concept of the 11th hour comes from this parable. Um, and so about five in the afternoon, the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Now that could sound dispassionate. Like, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Like, for goodness sake, I don't think that's the tone. I think he is trying to provoke a conversation with them. 
And they replied, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. The likelihood is that these people, um, you know, left to the very bottom of this pile of people who are already at the very bottom, were likely the least physically capable they were likely the oldest. They were, in other words, they were probably the least desirable group of laborers that you would have seen at the marketplace. They are, in very many ways, the last. And yet he says, uh, you go and work in my vineyard as well. And he makes no promise of payment. That's all we're told. You, you go and work in my vineyard. And they take him on trust, and they follow him, and they go and work. And then um, we have a few more surprises. Uh, when evening came in verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, now, hold on a second, he's got a steward, he's got a foreman. Why, why has he been going to the marketplace himself all day? Why not send your trusted foreman to go and hire the workers for you? Well, perhaps, again, he's just someone who likes to be involved, likes to be up close, and because, as I said before, I think he was a very compassionate man. Call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first two further surprises there. But that word that is translated as wages is, is essentially a, a full meaning of a, a full day's pay, okay? So it's not a generic thing. It's like pay them a full day's, okay? So we're like, okay, are these, all these people going to get paid the full amount? And then the second thing is that he flips the expected order. Usually you would start with the people who were hired first and work that way. But he says, no, no, start with the ones that I hired last and work that way. So in every way, and again, sometimes it's hard for us to fully understand the degree to which this is unusual, but this would have been already quite a shocking tale to first century listeners. Um, and so the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So those hired at the 11th hour receive a full day's wage. And then, of course, we get to the famous response from those hired first in verses 10, 11, 12. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. It's not fair, is what they are saying, right? Who's ever said that? It's not fair. Who's ever witnessed a very young child say, it's not fair? <laughs> we have this inbuilt sense of fairness, don't we? What is right and what is wrong. Now, of course, we tend not to mind when things are a little more fair for us than when they are for others. It's funny, um, you know, growing up in the last century as I did, um, when you played past the parcel, who got a prize? The last person who opened the last, and of course, it's a game based entirely on luck and timing. But now, we have you know, five-year-old, three-year-old, lots of children's parties. It's become the custom in our culture to hide a little prize in every layer so that everyone wins. Now, I'm not going to get into sort of parenting strategies and raising young people. I think it's probably better just to do it the old-fashioned way, if I'm honest, helps them to learn. Um, wow, didn't, didn't expect that response. But we're very, very preoccupied with what's fair and what's not fair. And we all have this uh, built into us. So these landowners, quite understandably, and of course the parable is told in such a way that you do identify with them. It, it makes sense. Equal work for equal pay. Those who have been there all day should be paid more. Of course, this is how the world works, correct? This is the human expectation 
of how things should go. Of course they should be paid more. They've been out here for 12 hours. And these last people have only been here for one hour. The work's probably, all the hard work's been done already. To be honest, it's like when we turn up at 7.30 to set up for worship and somebody comes 20 minutes late and all the heavy stuff has been, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna get into it. I'm not gonna get into it. Grace, grace, grace. Um, but then we get to the landowner's response in verses 13 to 16. And, and pay attention to this. But he answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Gotcha. Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And that's the end of the landowner's words. Notice how he completely like destroys their argument. Um, first of all, contractually, did they agree to work for a denarius for the day? Yes, right? Secondly, on legal grounds, does he have the right to do what he wants with his own things? Yes. But then, most interestingly of all, he pushes them on moral grounds. Are you envious because I am generous? The literal Greek of, of that uh, sentence could be translated, is your eye evil because I am good? And so their complaint, and this is what he's pointing out, their complaint wasn't really about what they were paid. Their complaint was about what the others were paid, right? And so the landowner, and again, this is compassionate. I, I think you know, he realizes these last people, they've got families to feed. They have homes to go to. If I send them away with less than a denarius, which again is just a, you know, not an extravagant sum, just a normal day's pay, they will struggle to feed their families. And so here again, we see this compassionate landowner saying, I want to give all of these people a full day's wage so that they can live and flourish. And then Jesus uh, caps this parable off um, by saying, so the last will be first and the first will be Last, one of his most famous kind of phrases. Are you ready for another idea? Your Bible might be misleading you in another way. <gasps> the verse and chapter numbers are also something that were added in the centuries, many centuries after scripture was originally given to us and written down. I think the first time the English, an English Bible had both chapter and verse numbers was the Geneva Bible of 1560. Little fact for the, the Bible nerds out there. And of course, again, like the section headings, they're often very helpful. If, if I say, let's read Psalm you know, 27 together, it's great that they're all numbered. You can get there nice and quickly. So again, they're usually very helpful, but sometimes um, they break up the text in a very unusual way and, and sometimes in an unhelpful way. Um, um, I could tell you a way in which the ESV Bible gets across a certain theological agenda by putting Ephesians 5.21 at this, never mind, it's, it's a whole other thing. Come tonight to the, the how to read the Bible tonight and we'll talk about that kind of thing. So occasionally these chapter and verse numbers, because what happens if, if you open your Bible and you see the big 20, you'll sit down, you'll just start reading Matthew 20. That's how our brains work, right? We're our eye is drawn to the start of a chapter and we like to do things in nice, neat chapters. Who else has to finish a chapter when they start it on a book? Yeah, I, I just can't move on with my life unless I finish the chapter. Um, 
And so occasionally verse and chapter numbers can be a little bit unhelpful because, of course, the first listeners to these, you know, the stories in the Bible and the first readers for many, many centuries wouldn't have had chapter and verse numbers. And so Paul's letters, for example, they read as letters from start to finish. You're not really supposed to pull out little bits and all kinds of harm has been done by people kind of pulling out little bits, forgetting about the wider sweep of a given chapter or book or letter. Anyway, I'll not go down that rabbit hole any further. But suffice to say, Matthew 20, if we look at what comes immediately before it, it's very illustrative, illuminative of what is going on in, in Matthew 20, if we look at the end of, of, of Matthew 19. Now, I'd love to go back even farther, but given time, I'm just going to do the last few verses of Matthew 19, if you have them, feel free to pull them up. And so we've just had the rich young ruler, okay, a young man of great wealth who comes to Jesus and he says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, go away, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll be perfect. You know, you'll store up treasure in heaven. So that's what's happened. And then one of the disciples, Peter, says in reply, see, we have left everything, Jesus, and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, okay? There's no break in the thought here in the gospel. So what does that mean? Well, notice this. Right before our parable, the very last verse of, of Matthew 19 is, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then what happens right in the middle of our parable? Call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with who? The last one's hired and going on to the first. And then how does Jesus finish the parable? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The gospel author here, through the way he has laid this particular section out, is quite literally screaming at us to say, this is, what, this is the teaching that you need to be focused on. This is the point that Jesus is making. This is the kingdom principle that he is using this parable to try and teach. The last will be first and the first will be last. It could not be uh, more obvious to us, but of course we might miss it if we just start at the very top of chapter 20. When Queen Elizabeth passed away last year, who ascended the throne? Her firstborn, did someone say Philip? Um, um, it was her firstborn son, and when, uh, who's now King Charles III. When he passes away, who will ascend the throne? His firstborn son, right? That is the way that our society works, and that's the way many human societies have worked throughout history, is, is kind of the birthright of the firstborn, okay? And not just in royal families, but in normal families as well. Now, of course, our culture is a little bit different now. It is, you know, I think parents, that, that I imagine the trend is that they leave things divided equally among siblings. But historically, that's not always been the case. The firstborn son would usually have inherited titles, uh, responsibilities, and certainly inheritance, land, all of those kind of things. That is the way that human society has basically always worked throughout history. And of course, in the ancient Near East, in the kind of Old Testament context, that would have been absolutely taken for granted. But it's interesting that right from the beginning of the scriptural story, God works against this human principle. Let me lay this out for you. Who are the first siblings in scripture? 
Abel and Cain. All I heard was a sort of large mumble there. I couldn't actually discern that. I, did you say Abel and Cain? Cain and Abel, right? And what happens is Abel is elevated above his older brother, Cain. These are the first siblings in the Bible. So already God is doing something unusual. He is inverting our expectation. He is working against the human ideal of things. And then, of course, Abraham's son, second son, Isaac, is elevated over the firstborn son, Ishmael. Isaac's sons are who? Jacob and Esau. This is a, this is a Bible man here. Good job, Daniel. Um, and of course, Jacob is elevated above Esau. So right from the beginning of scripture, almost at every possible opportunity, it is telling us that God is doing something different than what is normal and what is expected in our world. And then later on in the scriptural story, uh, Israel chooses a king and they choose Saul. And Saul has a firstborn son, Jonathan. But who does God elevate to become the king? David, right? Now, not only is David not just, you know, he's not the younger brother in the royal family. He is the youngest of eight brothers from a lowly peasant family. Okay, so God is, is doing almost the extreme um, opposite to what would have been expected. There is a principle at play here. Now, this is not to say that these second-borns or the one that God elevates are perfect, and that's you know, the ideal, because of course they are not perfect, either David being a prime example of that. But the human story is one of just ongoing sibling rivalry, constantly preoccupied with who is going to be first. But then we, of course, come to the New Testament, and who comes along but Jesus Colossians 1 describes him as the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from among the dead. Truly, Jesus, if anyone has a right to be the firstborn and to take everything that that means in you know, every sense of that word, it is Jesus Christ. Anyone, if anyone has the right to embrace the right of the firstborn, it is him. And yet, what do we find out? He, he doesn't act in the way that we would expect that person to act. Philippians 2, this is an early Christian poem about Jesus, says this, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to death, on a cross. The one who we expect to, to kind of become this glorious victor and do everything that we would expect the ultimate firstborn to do, he subverts that and he takes on the appearance and, and the likeness of one of us and he becomes a servant. He even washes the disciples' feet. What is that saying to us? It's telling us this, this story that we see throughout scripture that God is self-giving, that love ultimately looks like Jesus Christ, that love looks like putting others first. Love does not look like necessarily taking what we think we might be owed. Getting ahead and being first is actually not what really matters to God. Um, I'm going to share a story much to my shame. Um, I went for a haircut on Thursday. Thank you. Thank you. I have very thick hair. I need it cut quite often. Without fail, every time I go to a new barber, the first thing they do, they put their hands up and they go, mm, you have very thick hair. Thank you, I grew up myself. Um, so I went on on Thursday morning, 
Thursday in my week, I tend to have, I call it Thinking Thursday. It's my day where I write sermons and, you know, sort of try to keep free of meetings and, and really do this kind of stuff. And, and to be honest, I've had a lot on this week. I thought, gosh, I've really, you know, Thursday is the day. I've got nothing yet. I need to really write this sermon. So I'm, I'm driving at nine o'clock in the morning straight to the, the barber shop to try and get a quick haircut. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of cogitating the first will be last, the last will be first. You know, Lord, like, you know, give me something that, that, that will be helpful for everyone. Park my car, um, start walking towards the barber shop, and as I'm walking towards it, it's in sight. A delivery driver drives his moped up right on the pavement outside uh, the barber shop. Now it's nine o'clock in the morning. I don't think anyone was ordering Deliveroo, so he and I lock eyes, and we both know what's happening. We're both trying to get a haircut, and of course, the barber shop is first come, first serve. And much to my shame, I need to tell you that I sped up slightly. Um, <laughs> And in that moment, I, you know, I took for granted, my time is more important than his. I have a sermon to write, Lord. You know, I need to get in that chair first. And of course, I get in, I get cold. No, I, I was going to, it's like 60-40 in my favor anyway, but I made sure that it, it stayed that way. Um, and I sit down, and of course, as soon as I sit down in the barber seat, I start to feel really guilty. Because <laughs> it occurs to me that a delivery driver earns his, you know, I, I imagine a portion of their money is based on how many deliveries they do. Okay, and so for him to take time out of his day to get a haircut presumably costs him more than it costs me. And so I'm sitting there going like, oh my gosh, I've just been thinking about the last being first and the first being last, and <laughs> I'm a pastor. It's like, this, this isn't good, Peter. Um, now, thankfully, you'll be, you'll be relieved to know, hopefully, that when he sat down and you know, the barber started talking to him, he was off that day. Guilt averted. Um, now, that's, you know, that's a silly story, but suffice to say, how many ways in your life are you trying to get ahead, right? Do you find yourself kind of checking the podium in your workplace or in your friendship group or in your finances? Are you, are you keeping one eye constantly on the podium to see who is ahead? I know that I can often fall into that mindset. I'm naturally quite, quite a competitive person. That's why Adam and I are such good friends. We're always uh, egging one another on. Um, but I want to suggest to you, in the kingdom of heaven, and I think this parable is telling us this, there is no podium. And if there is a podium, Jesus Christ is the only person who is on it. Okay, There is no place for us on a podium in heaven. There's a beautiful story I came across that I think illustrates you know, what it looks like when, when humans embrace this principle. Um, on the 5th of August, 1936, I know what you're thinking, that is 55 years to the day before I was born. Um, but the, the pole vaulting uh, in the Olympics happened. And so these were already a controversial Olympics in 1936 because they happened in Berlin. And so they were happening under the shadow of Hitler and his Nazi uh, government. But athletes from all over the world descended upon Berlin for the 1936 Olympics. Um, and on the 5th of August, we had the men's pole vaulting. And um, what, happens is, uh, what happened is it got down to final five. Three of them were American and two were Japanese. And, you know, they keep doing rounds and they gradually get eliminated. So uh, one of the Americans gets eliminated. The next four clear the bar. Um, next round, one of the Americans clears, I think it was 4.35 meters. Um, and then the next three, the two Japanese men, the other American, they all clear 4.25, but not 4.35. So then they compete again for sort of second, third, fourth place. And the American then gets eliminated. 
And it comes down to these two Japanese men who have both cleared, and they're really good friends. They're called Shuhei and Suo, I believe is how their names are pronounced. And they're really good friends. And they decide, that, so basically there were no rules in place for this kind of scenario. So the Olympic didn't actually have a, a way to decide who was going to get silver and who was going to get bronze. And what happened is these two men refused to compete further because they did not want that they felt that they should share it. They didn't want to compete with each other for silver medal. Isn't that beautiful? And so this story captured, obviously, news at the time in people's hearts because, of course, the Olympics is about what? Getting gold, right? And so here you have these two competitors, presumably who have trained, and uh, who decide, you know what? Our friendship is more important. Uh, our respect for one another is so great that we're not going to compete any farther. And so they refuse. What happened was the, the Japanese team decided to give uh, one of them silver because he had jumped. It, it had taken him only one attempt in an earlier round to jump a certain height, whereas it had taken the other man two. But that wasn't a rule that was in place. Now, this never, so this never happened before. This was the first time this kind of thing happened. And it could never happen again because, of course, they then made rules to clearly decide who would be um, sort of win in those circumstances. But this is amazing, right? So these two men, Shuhei and Suo, when they got back to Japan, they, so they cut their medals in half and they fused them together. And there's a picture yeah, it's going to come up there. And that's the two of them um, who must have been good chums. And uh, you can see those, these medals here, which are, are unusual. Nothing else like this exists. I don't think anyone else in history has probably ever um, ruined, in theory, an Olympic medal. But these have gone on to be known as the friendship medals. But this is what it looks like when we set aside rivalry. Isn't there something very compelling about that story? And this is why when we hear a story of someone who does something selfless um, in any regard, when they put others ahead of themselves, that's why it's so compelling. And it's, there's something about it that provokes us, right? There's something about when we see someone doing something that doesn't make sense in the human realm, but actually is it perfectly in agreement with this kingdom principle of the first being last and the last being first? I'm sure we can all share stories of someone's radical generosity that has changed our life or a time when we've seen someone do something unexpected and possibly even quite radical and it has provoked us into you know, a greater understanding of this idea of the kingdom of heaven. This, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The other way Jesus said that is for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, if Shuhei and Suo had gone with the convention and just kind of tried to figure out very quickly who was actually the winner, we wouldn't be talking about them today. But what they did was so unusual and so beautiful that it's an amazing story to still tell. And we see this in the parable. You know, truly, you know, when, when the landowner says to the first two who were hired, take your pay and go, right? He's, he, he's exasperated. He's like, you guys don't get this. And that truly is an example, right, of the first becoming last. They are kind of sent away like, hey, just take your pay and go. Indeed, the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's kind of what I wanted to share on this parable. I wonder if the worship team want to join me. And I just would love to leave a couple of questions up for a few moments. And uh, let's just sit and reflect on these. And I wonder if you could think with me about these. In which areas of your life are you constantly checking the podium to see who is ahead? And what might it look, look like for you to 
reflect on the first becoming last and the last becoming first? What decision could you maybe therefore make in your life this week to demonstrate this kingdom principle? Spirit of God, would you come now? We thank you, Jesus, for this incredibly powerful story. Thank you for this world that you show us that is so different to our own. Pray now that you would help us to have some clarity on the ways in which we are just operating entirely within human expectation and normality and we have lost our imagination for the kingdom in our jobs, in our lives. Instead of checking the podium, Jesus, would you help us to put others first? To discern what you might do in a given situation. We thank you for the example of this generous landowner, this compassionate person who did something unexpected, something that didn't make economic sense, something that offended others and yet was a beautiful thing to do. take a moment in silence. Nine. No.